Sub Thrill Seekers. I'm Connor. And I'm Dev. And Connor made us redo this because he wanted to go first. And this is Mass Hysteria. And I don't even feel bad. <laughs> Welcome or welcome back to Mass Hysteria. Connor, I will do the honor of sharing my Mass Hysterical of the week, as we know that my life is much funnier than yours. Much more of a joke than mine. That is true. I can't argue with that. Um, So, Connor and I have this friend who's my really good friend since kindergarten, Mel. And Mel's boyfriend, Jorge. And Mel's birthday was two or three weeks ago, and so she was celebrating it last weekend. We went out to dinner, then we went out to this, like, dance bar thing, whatever. And this is not my personal mass hysteria, but Jorge, her, her husband, had one of the funniest comebacks I've heard in a while. So he's, like, how would you describe him? He's, like, very mild-mannered, like... Yeah, he's very mild-mannered. He's very, he's a very sweet boy. Easygoing. Very easygoing. Very easygoing. Very polite. So he, uh, we had, like... Before we went to this bar, we'd had a couple drinks. So, like, you know, it's normal. You have to use the facilities. So, Jorge is, like, walking over to use the restroom. And this man cuts him in line. And instead of pulling a total, like, dev move or something and being like, excuse me, the line's over there. Jorge's like, (laughs) he points to the urinal. And he's like, go ahead. You can take it home with you if you want. Oh, my God. (laughs) And the man is, like, so thrown off. He's like... But my brother, where are you going to go to the bathroom then? And Hori's like, there's plenty of trees outside. You want to take that home, man? You take it home. Oh, my God. <laughs> and I was just like, wow. He couldn't handle any situation. He literally um, can. He could handle literally anything. So um, if someone cuts you in line for the urinal, just tell them they can take it home as a parting gift. Um, today we have... That's our life advice. That is our life advice. Welcome. You can put that on a fridge magnet. We endorse that. Um... Today, we are diving into a case that has many different twists. Each time you think it's over, just you wait. Um, And it makes you kind of stop and wonder if some families are destined for unfortunate events. But before we talk about the Paquette family, because they are the main topic of today's episode, we need to start at the very beginning. Con, will you you kick us off? I will, right after I kick you. <laughs> See what I deal with, you guys. If you want to send me private donations, I can give you my Instagram. You can give her your Venmo. Yeah, my OnlyFans. What? What? <laughs> <laughs> so it was January 1964, and Pamela Mason was doing what any other 14-year-old would have been doing: smoking crack. <laughs> Connor, please do not bring your personal life into the situation. I'm teasing. She was looking for ways to make her own money. She and her family lived in Manchester, New Hampshire, and Pamela put up flyers around town to advertise her interest in babysitting. Given that Pamela was only 14, she was mostly hired out for babysitting gigs that were after school hours. On January 13th, a few hours before Pamela would usually arrive from home from school, a man called the Mason residence. Pamela's mother picked up and was startled to hear a male voice on the line and told him to call back when Pamela was home from school around 4.30. When Pamela arrived home from school, her mother stressed to her that she should not take any babysitting job unless it was a woman that called. She didn't feel comfortable with Pamela getting picked up by a man. 
Her mother worked the evening shift at the Holiday Inn. In typical New England fashion, a storm was a brewing on that night. Mrs. Mason said goodbye to Pamela and Pamela's brother, and she crossed her fingers that the snow wouldn't delay her returning home from work. A little after um, her mother left, Pamela's brother picked up the phone and heard the man's voice on the other end. He handed the phone to his sister, but uh, after he gave her the phone, he must have like walked away because he didn't eavesdrop as she spoke to him. He assumed she was telling the man she would be unable to babysit for him. Um, but after hanging up the call, Paula, Pamela started to prepare dinner for her and her brother. The landlord of the family's space knocked on the door and asked if Pamela's brother could help install like an electrical fuse in the basement. So while her brother was downstairs assisting the landlord, this is only like a 15-minute window between 5.45 and 6 p.m., Pamela snuck out of the house. Nobody saw her leave, and nobody no knew where she was going. The storm that night grew into a major blizzard and continued well into the evening. Temperatures were well below freezing, and New Hampshire received over a foot of snow. It was a night to be inside under blankets. It's like a, that's what they call a three-dog night, you know? Maybe to um. have some a cup of hot chocolate made with three servings of Swiss Miss. But what do I know? And honestly, that is literally the only way to have hot chocolate if you put like yeah. three packets of if Swiss If you Miss. only eat this one packet. Who are you? Yeah. You might want to... Um... Rethink your life choices. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, so one thing was for certain though, it was not a night for anyone to be outside, let alone a child. When Pamela's mother made it home during the early hours of January 14th, she was shocked to find that her only daughter was nowhere to be found. Frantic, she called the police and reported her daughter missing. It wasn't until a week later that her mother and the authorities had any information about Pamela. On January 21st, a truck driver traveling southbound on Route 93 discovered a lifeless the lifeless body of Pamela Mason near the border of Manchester and Londonderry. Wow, I literally drove this way. Well, I drive there every single day. Yeah. There was evidence to suggest that she had been assaulted before she was stabbed and shot repeatedly. The contents of her stomach indicated that Pamela died two to four hours after she finished her dinner. The police had no leads. Who would want to harm such a young girl? Before we go into the murder investigation that followed, we need to back up a few years, four years to be exact. In 1960, Sandra Valade was 18 years old and working as a secretary for a Manchester factory. On February 1st, she left for work. Um, she left her work and she stopped at the library after a shift. She is a woman after my own heart. Um, according to Unsolved Mysteries, Sandra then took a swim class at the local YMCA and saw a movie um, in town after she finished her lesson. She lived with her parents, and she relied on the bus for transportation between places. One of the stops was a mile from her house, so she would get off the bus and walk home. On that night, she got off the bus at 9.14 p.m. and began to walk toward her house. It's really brave if she walks a mile at night. That is brave. But somewhere... This, this night, along that mile walk home, Sandra disappeared. The next day, her belongings, a coat, purse, a wallet, and a single one of her boots, uh, were all found in a canal. Sandra suffered an eerily similar fate to Pamela. On February 10th, so over a week after yeah. she went missing, her body was found frozen in a snowbank. She had been sexually assaulted, stabbed, and then shot repeatedly. The authorities had few leads initially, and all of them dried up. So when Pamela Mason was found dead in a strikingly similar way to how Sandra was killed, the police were now thinking a serial killer was responsible for both crimes. Initially, they had zero promising leads. Both crimes had happened in isolated areas, and there was no clear witnesses in either case. 
Also, it was in the 1960s. Technology was not as advanced, and DNA was decades away from being available for investigation. That was until they received a call from a local woman. Her name was Rena Paquette. She was in her early 50s with a teenage son named Danny. A few weeks after Pamela was found dead, Rena phoned the police. She told the officer who answered that she wanted to come in for an interview because she knew who had killed Pamela. Not only that, she said she knew who killed both girls, Pamela and Sandra. Even after her tip, the police never reached out to her to come in for an interview. They had no idea that time was running out. Early on February morning, Danny got up and dressed for school. He walked down the family staircase expecting to see his mother preparing breakfast in the kitchen. He was like 15 years old, so I think he's, that probably makes him a freshman or a sophomore. She was always the first person he saw in the morning. Um, when he reached the kitchen and she was nowhere in sight, he started to become nervous. It was February, and as most New Englanders know, February weather can be especially brutal. It was freezing in the early morning. Danny began to panic when he realized she had not taken her winter jacket. It was odd enough that his mother was missing, but gone without her coat as well. Something wasn't adding up to him. Danny's uncle lived close by. I also think he it said that he was um, a retired uh, like law enforcement. The well, uncle? Yeah, the uncle. Okay. Um, so he gave him a call, and like Danny called the uncle and explained the peculiar situation. His uncle immediately came over, and then the two of them searched around the farm for any indication of where uh, Raina could be. There was an old barn. It was about a mile or so from the Puckett house. And according to Lisa Marie Foucault's article from Medium, Danny and his uncle searched for over an hour around the area before noticing that the barn was smoking. And as they got closer, they found a horrific scene. Oh Raina Paquette's body was burning in the barn. Jesus. The police were immediately called to the scene and ruled Raina's death a suicide. And Danny and Raina's family were in shock and disbelief. There was no way Raina would kill herself, and definitely not by self-immolation. She showed some signs of depression, but the family could not believe that she would kill herself in such a horrific manner. Self-immolation is an especially gruesome way to die, and it's usually used in acts of political protest. Danny had a sinking feeling that his mother's contact with police had come at a cost. Whoever had killed Pamela and Sandra was not only out there still, but he or she was coming for anybody that had dangerous knowledge. What had Raina known exactly? According to the Sun Journal, Rena had had information that led her to suspect Edward Coolidge. Quote, news accounts from that period said that she had gotten phone calls from a woman who told her to check the pigsty because Pamela Mason had been murdered there. End quote. The police arrested Edward a week, a few weeks after Rena had was found dead. He was a delivery man for Coates Brothers Bakery, and there was evidence to confirm that he had indeed been away from his house from 5.30 p.m. to 11.15 on the night Pamela Mason was murdered. Edward claimed that he had an alibi, though. His anniversary with his wife was on January 15th, so he had driven out to Haverhill, Massachusetts, to look for a present for her. Driving during a blizzard for a wedding gift. It's either extreme devotion to anniversaries or a bold-faced lie. I'm sure thrill-seekers, you can figure out which way we're leaning on this one. Obviously, he's very devoted to his wife. Very devoted. <clears throat> but, like, of all the alibis, you're going to say you drove out in the middle of a blizzard. Yeah, think of something better. Um, Although it'd be hard to have an alibi, I guess. If it's a blizzard, people don't really go places. They hold up. But, like, know? oh, I was trying to get milk, and then I turned around. Like, literally anything. So, Why would you uh, if Devin has an alibi that includes a blizzard, um, we will know to fact check her. I will obviously be buying a gift for my wife. Thank you. Um... <laughs> This case would be a lot easier to close with concrete evidence or witnesses, but that was the issue. All the evidence was circumstantial. 
Coolidge was cooperative with authorities when they came to question him. He was asked if he owned a gun, and he owned multiple, and he, so he produced two shotguns and a rifle. Yeah. Live free or die in New Hampshire. I was just going to say that. Don't uh, hate us because you ain't us. Well, I'm, I'm not from New Hampshire. I would never claim to be from New Hampshire. I also am not from New Hampshire. <laughs> if you don't get that reference, listen to episode two. Or maybe don't, honestly. The audio quality is significantly lower. <laughs> Sketch. Um... <laughs> But anyway, so on his day off from work, Coolidge came into the station because he wanted to take a poly, or he didn't want to, but the police wanted him to take a polygraph test. His wife stayed with him um, at the station the entire time. A week later, Coolidge was taken to the Concord police station for another polygraph. During the interrogation, he confessed to embezzling money from his employer. I'm unsure how that would come up if they're investigating. I guess they must have arrested him under that initially, but this was Mm. grounds enough to hold him overnight at the very least. And while Coolidge was in the station, his wife was at home with her mother-in-law. So two officers knocked on the door, and they waited for her to answer. And these are two officers that were completely different from the two men who initially questioned Edward Coolidge. So when the officers asked her to show them the clothes he was wearing on January 13th, when he supposedly went out to get her a beautiful anniversary gift, and the guns that the family owned, she handed over four guns. Edward had said there were only three guns. The police wasted no time in obtaining a warrant for his arrest. So after Edward's arrest, Mrs. Coolidge was asked to leave the home as well so that the authorities could search it. The police were taking both the Coolidge vehicles with them. This ended up being a damning move for the authorities. The vehicles were both parked in spaces that were visible to neighbors. Hold on to this nugget of information because we will return to it in a bit. The police collected evidence that ultimately was used um, in Edward Coolidge's trial for the murder of Pamela Mason. His car had been swept, and residue of gunpowder was found during the search. Remember the gun that he tried to hide from the police? Well, it was a twenty-two caliber Mossberg rifle, and was thought to be the weapon that had killed Pamela. If DNA evidence was a thing back in these dinosaur times, the case would have been a home run. Unfortunately... All the prosecution could show from Edward's clothes was microscopic evidence that he encountered Pamela Mason that night. The circumstantial evidence, though, was strong enough to convict him. Edward Coolidge was found guilty for the the murder of Pamela Mason and sentenced to life in prison. The earliest he would be eligible for parole was 18 years, which is a very low prison sentence, you would think, for murdering a 14-year-old girl. Yeah, well... But what do I know? This is 1964, right? 19... yeah. Um... According to the Portsmouth Herald, Edward Coolidge was also charged with the murder of Sandra Vallade. The charges were ultimately dropped in 1965, though, as Edward claimed to not have acquired the Mossberg uh, rifle until 1961, which would be the year after Sandra had been killed. Um, And remember the seizure of Edward's car that Connor mentioned? Well, this ultimately led to him being released from prison. Given the car's visibility from the street, it was determined that there was not probable cause for them to have to search for the police to search the cars. It was ruled to be in violation of his Fourth Amendment right. In 1991, Edward Coolidge was released from prison on this technicality. If you're thinking, okay, what more could you possibly have to say about this case? Just wait, it's about to get even stranger. The Sun Journal wrote that no detectives believed that Rena Paquette had actually killed herself. Her family especially believed that she had been murdered. In 1991, almost 30 years after her death, her body was exhumed and re-examined. The cause of her death was changed from cremation by suicide to undetermined. According to the the same Sun Journal article, 
the medical examiner ruled that homicide was a strong possibility for cause of death. The death of his mother haunted Danny for a long time. Healing from the death of a family member is incredibly traumatic, especially from, for someone like Danny who had very many questions than answers. He was troubled throughout his life and everything seemed harder than it should have been for him. A common feeling amongst some of us I see. Danny did eventually get married and have some children of his own. Unfortunately, his marriage came to an abrupt end, but was followed by a really long custody battle over his children. Uh, Danny really loved his children, and he was close to them. His wife won full custody, though, and this ended up being the final straw that broke the camel's back. Danny did not handle the divorce well and struggled to be apart from his children. One day, he showed up to his wife's house unannounced and had a mental breakdown. He tried to see his children, demanding she give him give them to him until authorities came to arrest him. In true late 20th century fashion, Danny was sent to a psychiatric hospital where he underwent hypnosis sessions. Perfect. Um, and this is how Danny Darko... Don, Danny Darko. Donnie I, Darko. I was trying to be funny and I messed it up. Still funny. Donnie Darko is the ultimate hypnosis movie. Connor, I think you would agree, right? That's wicked creepy um, too. Part, I don't know, it's just unsettling. Didn't we? I think we watched it together at my house, didn't we? I think we did, and we talked about how, like, the reason it's creepy is that it's unsettling. You're just really not sure exactly what happened. You're, <laughs> you, you, you go into the movie, and you come out knowing less than you went in. Exactly. Um, so part of his treatment involved discussing everything that had happened to his mother. And during one of the sessions, Danny, while being hypnotized, recalled that on the day his mother went missing, he had seen her arguing with a delivery man. The delivery man, he realized, was Edward Coolidge. His treatment happened in 1985, so at the time, Edward was still in jail. The police were not convinced to reopen Raina's case after learning about the hypnosis sessions. By the end of 1985, Danny had been out of treatment for a few months. He seemed to be working hard to better his life. Lisa Marie Fakwa um, wrote for Medium that, quote, his friends and family had noticed a real change in him, end quote. Danny was a handyman. He could take apart cars and machinery and easily put it back together. Like myself. Like, yes. We'll just, yes, sure. <laughs> we'll go with it. Um, anyway, on the morning of November 9th, 1985, Danny had a few friends over at his house. He was doing some work in work on a bulldozer with them when, around 11 a.m., he was out of sight from his crew. After they noticed his absence, he heard a gun pop. Scared with the possibility of what they could find, his friends quickly rushed over toward where he, where the sound had come from, and they found Danny lying face down in the grass with a bullet wound visible on his back. He had died almost instantaneously. The bullet had gone straight through him and landed right in a telephone pole. Is that insane? That's really crazy. It was one of the few pieces of evidence that they could find. The other clue was as to the killer's identity was his footprints on the ground. So the bullet, in combination with the footprints, ruled out the theory that this could have been an accident. Someone deliberately shot Danny. Who would have a reason to kill Danny? And why was the same family targeted twice? So I guess like they thought initially that maybe a hunter accidentally. Yeah, no, like, that makes sense. But, out, but it was with footprints that close to the and scene. Apparently there was like a little bit of a, like a gravel yard kind of thing and you would have to there's no way you would be hunting sneak up yeah 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 yeah. 
Danny's case was cold for 20 years. Some people believed he must have had information about the murder of his mother and the two girls that led him to ultimately become a target as well. And he could have. We can't confirm or deny it. In 2004, though, some tipsters alerted authorities that Eric Windhurst had been the one to kill Danny. Eric Windhurst is a name we haven't brought up yet, so if you're tilting your head sideways, we get why. Though Eric's name may be unfamiliar to you, his girlfriend in 1985 should sound familiar. Melanie Paquette, Danny's stepdaughter. At first, when police questioned the pair, they claimed to have been at a field hockey game. Eventually, though, Melanie and Eric, who were 15 and 17 at the time of the crime, respectively, um, confessed that Danny had been shot by Eric while Melanie was present. When Melanie was 15 years old, she confided in Eric that Danny had sexually abused her as a child. If he did, that is disgusting and absolutely devastating. But she should have gone to the authorities. Instead, Melanie and Eric concocted a plan to kill Danny. Eric claimed that he wanted revenge. He shot Danny from 300 yards away before taking off into the woods. Eric lived for 20 years freely, knowing that he had taken the life of Danny Paquette. Even stranger, though, family members were rumored to have known what he had done, but nobody dared to come forward. That's awful. Isn't that insane? I think yeah. it was more than just family. I think, like, friends also knew, but yeah. no one said anything. Eventually, the police were able to contact Melanie and follow up on the tips that they had received in 2004 about Eric's involvement. Melanie received 15 months for hindering in an an investigation, but her cooperation with authorities led her to a much better faith than Eric. Eric pleaded guilty to second-degree murder and served 15 years in prison until he was granted parole over Zoom in October of 2020. Everyone had a Zoom experience in 2020. I watched his zoom um uh parole mm-hmm. hearing and it was just like it's just weird like yeah. you're yeah um well danny's family was devastated his his uh brother victor has been like very active and trying to get eric to stay in prison longer but he was um, released um some of the residents of eric's hometown fully supported him and they even offered him a place to stay after he was released oh. to this day though nobody truly knows what happened to reina paquette at this time, Edward Coolidge has never been tried for Raina's murder either. We're crossing our fingers that it won't take 20 more years for Raina to get the justice he deserves. So, what did you think of this crazy case? Let us know at the Mass Hysteria podcast on Instagram. Yes, please um, let us know. It's pretty crazy. It's crazy how much it's all intertwined. It's really intertwined and also, like, definitely, like, a moral dilemma because, like, I kind of get why he did it, but... Oh, yeah. And, like, you can understand where he's coming from, but obviously he didn't go about it in the most uh no i mean he broke the law he yeah. killed someone but it's still like yeah there's there's a lot there so let us know let us know what you think dm us email us and uh we'll talk to you next week bye, bye guys, guys.